doesn't matter how quick or how fast a parent can jump on the bandwagon of acceptance. There must be phases of doubt. There must be phases of wondering and embarrassed and how could this be? What am I going to say to my family? Absolutely, I was right there. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Ming, and welcome back. June has been an extremely emotional month. From the continuous fight against COVID-19 to racism and discrimination across our country, I have been so sad and stressed about the world that my children have to grow up in. Just when I was starting to lose hope, I get to replay and edit this inspiring interview. I saved this episode to be released on the last day of June, Pride Month, to recognize the LGBTQ community, reminding us all to live a life that is true to ourselves. I had a very privileged and beautiful upbringing because my dad was in a high-ranking position as an officer in the army. In this episode, I take you back to season three, our theme on stories from Generation 1.5 Refugees, a term used for people who immigrated here as children. I had the pleasure of interviewing Kolong, a program coordinator of support services and community development for PFLAG NYC. PFLAG is a nonprofit, community-driven organization focused on uniting parents, families, and allies with people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, also known as the LGBTQ community. Golong and I spoke on April 30th, the anniversary of the fall of Saigon, a significant day for our Vietnamese community. It was especially significant for Golong, as that was the exact day her family left Vietnam. My dad traveled a lot in his position, and there were always aunts and uncles looking after us. And we have homes in different cities, and we traveled from city to city. But at every city, my parents would put us in a Catholic kind of a school. We are always looked after. And um, I remember really having the best of everything for my parents. But life was very um, peaceful and beautiful for me as I remembered it in Vietnam, up until the time we had to leave on April 30th. Tan Long Nguyen was born in 1963 in Saigon, one of eight children, a family of two boys and six girls. She was girl number six. My dad had taken an early retirement and took us to Fukuok Island and had bought passages for us on this ship that was waiting outside. But my dad was a very patriotic person. He would not think about leaving Vietnam unless Vietnam, South Vietnam, had fallen. And by then, no, no ship would come in to pick up the passengers, even though we had passage fares. The way that my dad got us to leave Fukuok was to, to sort of flash his badge with the general of the Navy and asking permission to put his family on the same barge as a general. 
when I was in high school and in my English class, the teacher would enter his students into writing contests repeatedly. And, and I titled the story One Way Tickets because that was exactly how it was. It was a ticket to get out. And I recorded, you know, those 17 days living on the ship. They were out at sea on a Navy ship and was taken to Subic Bay, Philippines. Golong was only 11 years old. We were kids. I'm sure the older sisters and brother must have known, but I was too way down the line to really be privy to any knowledge of what's happening. Though I do know that that was strange that, you know, we're all here. I don't have any knowledge of how what I have shared up to now had been stories that were told to me, you know, much, much later on. From Subic Bay, Philippines, they were taken to Guam, where they waited for immigration processing. From April 23rd to November of 1975, Guam was the processing center for Operation New Life, a program that helped Vietnamese refugees evacuate it from Saigon in the closing days of the Vietnam War, housed in tent cities while being processed for resettlement. This process took anywhere from weeks to months. Many families were waiting to go to Camp Pendleton in California, hearing that California's weather is similar to Vietnam, and so everybody was waiting. I remember hearing the story that my dad said, no, we cannot wait. That's the line is too long, the wait is too long. We must get ourselves out. So we went to Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. Fort Chaffee is located in Northwest Arkansas. It was among four domestic military bases to take in refugees from the war. The others were Camp Pendleton in California, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. And I believe we were the first, you know, hundreds of families that arrived there and the camp was brand new. And we were assigned to a wooden barracks. Together with my mom and dad and sisters and brother, we have an uncle who's a priest. And my aunts, both of these are my father's brother and sister, and my aunt's youngest son. So there were 13 of us in our family. After about two and a half months, my dad made the decision that we must get the children out to school to begin the school term. He is very clear about the schedulings like that. And because our family was so big, there was no way a sponsor could take all of us. He made the decision to divide up our family into groups. The two eldest went with her uncle, who was a priest and got sponsored by a parish in South Dakota. Her aunt went along with them. The next two girls went with her dad's military friend to Virginia. And that left the four youngest who went with mom and dad to a suburb in Denver, Colorado. And I remember being enrolled in school and being kept back at sixth grade again so that I could attend school with my younger brother. And then the two sisters above me went to a middle school and a high school. We were sponsored out by a Baptist family. But after about three years, my dad and mom called everyone back 
At the time, we had moved from Colorado to California. Then all of a sudden, to see every sister and brother come home and got reunited, that was very special for me. I asked Ko Long what it was like growing up in Colorado, those first three years in America. That time, I also realized and recognized a very distinct difference about life. Especially my mom never had to work a day in her life. But in Denver, she had to work with my dad in a Subway sandwich. And I remember seeing that and I remember feeling a pain. I got to accompany my dad to his second job when he was a janitor in the Denver Museum of Natural History. I remember nightly after school, after homework and dinner, I would get to go with my dad and help him with this big mob going up and down the empty closed museum to help my dad and to be there and, and be his assistant. I don't remember seeing any Vietnamese students in my school. I would say the first year or so, and of course I had no English background then, not a word. To be able to have to speak and communicate, I distinctly remember using my hands a lot, using tears a lot, and using just draw things out. In our country, you know, there is a proverb that said, um, you know, how, how your life can flip overnight. And that's exactly what I felt. But my father truly is the one who has faith in the future, motivating us, reminding us, you know, that this is the same beginning for everyone who's in the same boat as us. In the early days, I think it was survival for my parents to try to adjust to bring up the kids and to make enough to pay rent and all of that, right, to live. During the time in California, when I moved there um, and attended middle school and then went on to high school, then schools began to have more Vietnamese students and the Vietnamese community in Westminster and Little Saigon was beginning to become big. I probably am one of the few of the kids in the family who took to the American lifestyle. Friends, clubs, going away, prom. I mean, the whole thing, which I thought none of my sister really or brother really did because they came in at a later year's high school and then they finished quickly and then they went to work. But I got the opportunity to came into school from a middle school level. And so I assimilated very quickly into this American culture. She attended college in Los Angeles and after school, decided to move to Montreal with her boyfriend. And this is unconventional, non-traditional for a Vietnamese girl who's barely out of college to have a Western boyfriend, you know? So my family was adamantly, no, no. But having this rebellious nature, I went ahead and just, you know, let, lived my life as early as 19 years old. Kolong and her boyfriend eventually moved back to California together. She applied for the teaching program at California State University, Long Beach. As she was waiting for admissions, she had to get a job. I so wanted to be a classroom teacher. I just felt that it was an opportunity to connect, relate, share, but I had to go look for a part-time job. And so I went to Target 
in Huntington Beach on Adam Street and I apply for a job. And in that interview, my whole world opened up into personnel management. So instead of teaching, Golong entered the human resources field and helped launch a new Target store where she managed recruiting and training of the employees. She later switched jobs to work for a computer manufacturing plant that had a lot of Vietnamese in the production line. And so here I was, a Vietnamese person, speaking Vietnamese with the production folks and being able to do hiring and recruitment. So it was, now I'm realizing, oh, my skill in having Vietnamese language really is, you know, a, a skill is a value added skill. I find that language is what connects us. Our language, Vietnamese language is so rich. And you must know by now that there's so many levels of Vietnamese words and language that someone had asked me recently, how do I address so-and-so? I said, uh, you have to look at yourself and where you, who you are and where you are and what position you are and who you're talking to. And they said, and <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> it's so true. And how we address aunts and uncles to, depends on like the sequences in the family. From mother's side or from father's yes. side. Yes. And I still get it very confused. Golong married her boyfriend and moved to Florida. She attended the University of South Florida to get her master's degree in teaching and finally got to live her dream of becoming a teacher. I gave birth to my baby in 1997 and throughout my entire pregnancy, I believed that I was going to have a baby girl. I just felt it, knew it, sure of it, so sure that I only pick out one name, Mika. So when the doctor said to me, you have a baby boy, I said, no, I have a baby girl. But here was my beautiful baby boy, 10 toes, 10 fingers, adorable. I fell in love and raised my baby with all the boys' toys, Buzz Lightyear's Lego, Caterpillar construction, anything that I, in my narrow mind, thought a boy's toys. So when I became a teacher, took my kid to school every single day from kindergarten on, my kid would be sitting among all the girls' classmates. And I never once thought anything. And it went like that until fourth grade or so, when I went through a very, very difficult, hostile divorce. And so now my kiddo had two homes to live, dad's house and mom's house. And it was spring break during sixth grade that I had my kiddo. And after lunch one day, sitting around talking, and I get this from my kid, mom, I'm a girl, you know. And as a single mom and an elementary teacher, I continuously had very quick response to everything. So I looked at my kiddo and I said, you know, your dad's Caucasian, you're mixed race, you're a beautiful boy. That's it. You're pretty. That's, I, I see why you say that. So the next thing that came out of my kid's mouth is, Mom, please don't call me a boy. Now, by then, I had nothing to say. Not when my kid is weeping and sobbing and crying, and I'm like, what is happening? So there was this laptop on the kitchen counter, and I flew to it, and I typed in the browser, what does it mean when my son tells me he's a girl? And in my adult, 40 years old, some life, I saw the word transgender. 
And the more I read about it, the more I had total pushback. This is not me. This is not my family. This can't be us. This is not true. And then I felt a horrendous guilt wash over me. Oh my God, Lord, did you make this happen? Because you so wish for a baby girl. Did you make this happen? A lot of emotions. And then I look at my kid who's still crying, who's obviously in pain. And so I said, honey, I don't know what this all means to us, but we're going to walk through it together. So then I asked, I said, does your father know about this? And my kid said, yes, mom, I told dad. And dad said not to talk about it. That's when I sort of woke out of my stupor and pick up the phone and say, ex-husband, did you forget to tell me something? And the answer that came back to me was, I'm the psychologist. This is just a phase our kid is going through. I don't want you to do anything. So I just went online and read and researched about everything that I could find on transgender. And I found an organization called Trans Youth Families, TYF. And with them, they helped me understand that transgender is that innate feeling that a person gets as young as two, three years old when a person's gender identity first awakened in themselves. This was in Florida, and this was around 2008, 2009. And she was in sixth grade at that time. By the start of seventh grade, it had gotten to be so heated between her father and me in that he was not accepting of his daughter, but that I was accepting of our daughter in ways that I would go shopping with my daughter in the girls' departments, buying whatever she needed to buy to feel comfortable. My daughter would have to change out of her girls' clothing in the back seat before she goes into her dad's house. So it was that kind of an existence that my daughter lived under. My ex went to court and asked for a temporary relocation to California. My ex-husband is Caucasian male. And look at me, I'm an Asian female. His background is psychology. Yeah, I'm a teacher. The judge didn't even hear my side of the story. Sign off the temporary relocation and they left. When I got to see my kiddo again, I asked, where are we with a transgender topic, honey? And she said, Mom, I live with Dad now. I'm a boy again. And I asked if she wanted to come back to live in Florida with me, and she said no. She really liked to live in California with Dad. And that was enough for me to leave things be. And I needed to heal just as much as she needed time and space. I had taken time out of teaching. I went on a sabbatical leave to sort of heal from the inside. And that's when I stepped into a tradition and a practice that really woken me up to my Vietnamese heritage all over again. More so than I ever realized that I am a Vietnamese person. And it's a tradition of Plum Village. Plum Village is a global community of mindfulness practice, offering retreats and teachings on engaged Buddhism and the art of mindful living. Founded by Thay Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese global spiritual leader 
who is recognized around the world for his pioneering teachings on mindfulness, global ethics, and peace. Did any of your Catholic upbringing challenge you, your thinking along the way? My family came from a very staunch Catholic background, very strict and very deep. The roots runs very deep. And so talk about faith. Oh, my father, my mother, their faith is deep. And I never doubted that faith. I see whereas Catholic has a lot of rituals, I was looking for something more heart connection. And in 2011, at the bottom of my life, where I felt I needed to retreat from life. And I stepped back and I stepped and leaned into Plum Village, which is the Zen Buddhist teaching of Thay Thit Nhat Hanh. Thay said to me, or to all of us, and I think he said to me, <laughs> he said, um, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Jewish or whatever your religion is. This is not a religion. This is a practice on how to live life fully and mindfully. I was like, now that I can understand. And then I went back to California. Did you move back because your daughter was in California? Multiple reasons. I um, helped my dad because he too had a stroke. And I got to see my kiddo graduate early from high school and moved away to college in Canada. It was 2016 and I decided that I too want to go back to teaching classroom teaching and I'd just taken a job assignment in China at, at an international school and I got this text one morning that said mom waking up like this is tiring I need to transition oh my god I'm sitting there with this text and I'm thinking my girl's coming out again to me the second time here so I sent back a text and I said honey you are 18 and a half you are an adult this is your life you make that decision and I'm sure everything will be fine so she said, okay. And I said, I just took a job overseas. Do you want me to stay behind and be here with you? And she said, no, you go because this is something you've always wanted to do. So before I left for my assignment, I flew up to be with my daughter. And I said, honey, let's go clothes shopping. Let's go jewelry shopping. Let's go makeup shopping. You're my girl, right? I'm now showering my daughter with everything that I believe are girl stuff. And she said to me, sure, mom, let's do it. But I also want you to know, I still do my karate. I still do DJ music making. I still do my scootering. And it took me a while to wrap my head around all that she is. She tells me, mom, transgender is a spectrum. It is not one or the other. And I'm learning every day of what it means to be non-binary to be gender fluid, to be non-conforming to one or the other. And the more I'm learning, the more, of course, my headache is hurting because I'm thinking, okay, what now? But at the same time, I am expanding my appreciation for humankind and becoming more and more on the path to just be the bridge the link for others to understand. Was there any point in those few years where you might stop and say, maybe it is a phase, maybe she will grow out of it? Or did you always feel very confident that this is who she is? Doesn't matter how quick or how fast a parent 
can jump on the bandwagon of acceptance, there must be phases of doubt. There must be phases of wondering and embarrassed and how could this be? What am I going to say to my family? Absolutely, I was right there. When I had written out my essay for this teaching opportunity, I had written out at the time before my daughter came out the second time. So by the time I arrived in my school, international school, my daughter had already come out. And so I was referring to her as my daughter. And this biography of mine was put on the newsletter as all new teachers. And people would say, oh, how's your son? And I'm like, my daughter is wonderful. And I would see this look on their face like, what? And I would said nothing because I didn't know what to say. I was in China and I didn't know if China was accepting. I was at a school that is Christian based. And I personally myself had not even learned much of anything in all those years. So I'm like, I'm not saying anything except I just know that she's my girl. After China, Golong moved back to the United States and settled in New York City. That's when my whole new world of learning and being so much a part of the LGBTQ community, it began for me because I realized that if we don't come out as a family, we would not know how to go about. We would be living in a way that is a lot of family, especially a lot of Vietnamese family live, which is don't talk, don't say, don't tell, nobody knows. And there's a part of me that say, that doesn't feel right. That means I'm, I'm not fully in acceptance. So I finished reading this book called Transitioning of the Hearts. It's a compilation of stories of mothers who had written in and put together. And it was January 1st, 2018. I just finished that book. I remember sitting in this coffee shop. I called up my daughter and I said, honey, I need us to come out as a family. She said, okay. And right then, and then I made a Facebook posting. Can you believe that? I made a Facebook posting and I just talked to people and I said, this is my family. This is my story. I asked along how her family responded. My family has known me to be different from the get-go. So he was one more different things about Luan and her life. Everyone loves my kiddo. They love me. So they said, okay. There was not a lot of questions. There was not a lot of asking of anything to show me that there was an interest to understand. So that's where things are. But in a way, it's consistent with how I've known of my family and sibling. Because it's so different, nobody know how to ask questions. And I didn't want to go in and just start sharing information when nobody really asked any question. As the years goes on, and as I become a volunteer for PFLAG NYC, going into school and sharing our story with my daughter's permission, I became more vocal and I become more healed every time I share my story. Transgender is such a broad term, Tracy, that people just hear the word transgender, right away they go to who? They go to famous celebrity who have had surgical, you know, reassignments. And that's what people think. And yet transgender does not mean any kind of surgery or hormonal. It, it has such a broad range. There's a lot to be learned. PFLAG organically started in 1972 in New York City when one mother decided to stand by her gay son in the Liberation Day March 
the precursor to today's Pride Parade. Afterwards, many gay and lesbian people ran up to her, asking her to speak to their parents. What started out as a local support group has grown to over 400 chapters, crossing multiple generations of families across America. I'm a teacher at heart. I would love to be back in the classroom, and I felt this was a way to continue my teaching, my sharing, my education. And so I became a volunteer, and I brought our family story as a PFLAC mom, and sharing with students and teachers and parents at PTA meeting or at teachers' professional development to really raise awareness. You've developed a close-knit community where a lot of individuals that you know want to feel like they're a part of a supportive community yes pflac nyc has um different support meetings then i get to meet people who are of vietnamese heritage and then i got to meet um soi who is a beautiful trans woman here in new york city and she brought the batv blang thing viet concept from san francisco to new york city a few years ago and when i got to know her and meet her and join the batv here in new york city and come together and cook food to eat together and speak together in vietnamese language and the base of batv is a safe space for viet queer folks young adults of Vietnamese heritage. They have a very strong desire to live their life fully as who they are. And sometimes that goes against the grain of their parents' way and expectation. This group of young Vietnamese adults refer to her as Go Long, a mentor, a pseudo-parent, but most importantly, a trusted friend. I would say, mom and dad, don't waste another day of not being connected to your kids. They haven't really changed. They're still that child that you gave birth to. They just decided to live truly as who they are. They didn't do it to hurt you. They do it to be true to themselves. You know that story that I wrote called One Way Tickets? I realize the meaning of it is we are all given just one-way tickets the minute we're born. We are all given one-way tickets, one life to live. Let us not let our lack of understanding create fear. Let us not let our differences divide us. Thank you, Golong, for reminding us all of this with your beautiful story. To connect with Golong or learn more about PFLAG NYC, Visit our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 21. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnamesebogpeople.org.